Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and chapter 3, 1 through 7. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then both of them were, <clears throat> then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I was raised in a Jewish household. It wasn't just our religion, it was our heritage. It was a spiritual quest that brought me to Louisville. And that's actually when I started looking for more meaning, what I consider was my quest for God. I met Lauren and Phil through my neighborhood association. And Lauren became a very good friend very quickly. Lauren asked me if I wanted to come to community group. So um, I came to community group, but on one hand, I didn't feel like I was able to really contribute to the conversation because I hadn't heard the sermon. And one day I asked her if I could go to church with her. I was definitely headed somewhere, and that was to Christ. On August 2nd, Tuesday, August 2nd, I was sitting in Lauren's living room and we were talking and I told her what I was doing, how I was praying, how I was handling these situations. And she said to me, you know, Mary, you sound like a Christian. That was my moment. Leading up to my baptism day, I kept telling everybody, I felt like a nervous bride. This was the biggest thing in my life. Something I'll never forget. Peace be with you. Praise God for Mary's story 
and for uh, the many people here at uh, Sojourn who uh, contributed and played a part in her coming uh, to faith in Christ. And if you have not been baptized, but you uh, are a Christian, we want to encourage you to go to baptism class and uh, become a Christian and, and talk uh, to people and go public with your faith. Uh, that way uh, we can know your story as well. And you can have a, a point in time that you can look back on and see uh, God's faithfulness to you, God's goodness to you, and a, a testimony of going uh, down, being submerged in that water and coming up um, and identifying with the rest of those who've put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. So uh, this is, uh, we're in a series called Our Sojourn. And, you know, part of our mission as a church is to reach people with the gospel, to build them up as a church, and to send them into the world. And we see this evident in Mary's life and how she came to sojourn. She was reached with the gospel. Uh, she was built up. And uh, we, we are praying that the Lord will continue to send her out to people uh, that she knows who doesn't know Jesus. Let's start off with a, a word of prayer, and we'll dive right into our, our uh, sermon for today. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for getting us to this point of the day. I pray, Father God, that your spirit would move and that he would uh, manifest himself here through peace and a clear mind and that you would allow your word to go forth with much power. Pray, Father God, that you uh, would hide me behind your cross and help me to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified, not to please men, uh, but to please you by faith. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, today we want to continue our series, Our Sojourn, and in that series, we're looking at our values as a church. Um, many of you know that there are four sojourns in the Kentuckiana area, and each of us collectively kind of make up uh, what we call one sojourn. And we have three major or big values as a collective of churches. The first is we value truth. The second is we value beauty. And the third is that we value goodness. And so at Sojourn Midtown, we're going through these values, but under each of those major values that all four churches have kind of uh, uh, staked uh, our flag in, so to speak, um, under each of those values, we have uh, these other values, these, these values that fit under those categories as a local church. So last week, uh, we handed out a bookmark, and we still have some bookmarks in the back if your uh, dog ate the one that you got last week. <laughs> or if you weren't here, uh, you can get another bookmark in the back. And in the back, it shows these kind of six values, these six things that as a church and as pastors, um, and with, with the help of many members, we've kind of identified these are the six things that Sojourn Midtown that are most evident in our fellowship and that we want to uh, make sure uh, that we keep as a church, that we are, are living out uh, regularly. And the first was biblically faithful. Uh, we want to be submitted to and shaped by God's word. The second was gospel-centered. Uh, Jesus forms and fuels everything we do. And today we want to look at two more values, transformative relationships, intentional community compelled by God's love, and diverse fellowship. Every person matters to God, so they matter to us. And we want you guys to know these values. We want you to memorize these values. Perhaps in your community group, you can have like a, a contest to see who can memorize them first or something. I don't know. But do what you need to do to, 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 to make sure that you embody these values. Now, it may be interesting to you today that we're talking about beauty and that under beauty is relationship and fellowship. Um, and that may be, may be new to you. A lot of times when we think about beauty, we think about aesthetics, cosmetics. Uh, here as the uh, Americans, we know that we're really into like beauty, treatment, beauty, products, 
Uh, in 2016, uh, America uh, spent about $84 billion in the beauty industry, which has various things, $84 billion. The next closest country, according to, according to Statistica.com, was uh, China. Uh, with 50 million. So we value beauty. And specifically when we think of beauty, we normally think of of aesthetics. But what I want to show you today is that uh, beauty is, uh, I'll give you a working definition of beauty that is more than aesthetics. And the first thing I want you to understand is that beauty is something that every human being longs for. Uh, Every human being longs for, every human being uh, uh, wants to see, works hard to see. And that beauty is something that is intrinsic to being human. God has built in his desire to see beautiful things in human beings. Um, Al Mohler, in his excellent uh, article, uh, A Christian Vision for Beauty, he plainly writes this. This desire for and recognition of beauty is something unique to human beings. Dogs do not contemplate a a sunset. Animals do not ponder the beauty of the landscape. It is true the heavens are declaring the glory of God. But most of the creatures on the planet are oblivious to that fact. They neither make or observe or appreciate art. They stage no dramas, they write no music, and paint no portraits. The desire for art is something unique and nearly universal among human beings. And so he is particularly there uh, talking about beauty in the arts. And arts are are certainly a, a category here that we believe is beauty and we want to continue to cultivate beauty. But I want to argue today that, yes, God has created us to see beauty and to to value beauty as human beings, um, but that the most beautiful things that human beings can ever see and observe, and specifically that the church has been called to do and to demonstrate, is actually relational. Yes, we value the arts. You go out in our art foyer, you'll see art up. You walk into the sanctuary and you see this uh, beautiful building and you see uh, how we cultivate the arts in here, and that's beautiful. But I want you to know, and the the thesis of of what I'm arguing today is that the most beautiful, the most beautiful thing um, besides God, who's objectively beauty, that we can experience is transformative relationships and, and diverse fellowship. And I want us to start off by looking at this, by, by, by first just defining what beauty is. And God is beauty. Psalm 27, verse 5, I ask one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Listen to this. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord. God is the only objective beauty. He is the definition of beauty. He is beauty exemplified. In fact, when we talk about God and his attributes, who he is internally, it manifests externally. God is love. God is peace. God is goodness. God is immutable, meaning he's unchangeable. Uh, God is He he has wrath. All of these attributes that we talk about, God, when they are manifested eternally, we get a word, and that word is glory. And so the Bible doesn't use the word beauty a lot, but it uses the word glory. And so when we're talking about beauty, we're talking about the glory, ultimately the glory of God. It's God, uh, who he is, manifested eternally to his people. That's what's beautiful. And so when we talk about beauty and defining beauty is important, Because I think as uh, human beings, we often get 
Things that are attractive mixed up with things that are beautiful. We often think, get things that are pretty mixed up with things that are beautiful. Things that are beautiful stem, they come directly from God. And listen, listen, and they're true and they're good. These transcendentals that we're talking about, truth, beauty, and goodness, these, these Greek, uh, the, the, these, the, the early philosophers identified of these transcendentals in, 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 in humanity that we, we appreciate and that we long for, they find themselves in God. And you can't have something that is beautiful if it's not true and if it's not good, right? You see a, a cloud mushroom um, hanging over a, a country or a city. You don't say that that cloud mushroom is beautiful if you know that it was created by an atomic bomb. It's not beautiful. Why? Because it's not good. Uh, when you see something or someone um, who has had tons of cosmetic surgery in order to appeal uh, to someone uh, sexually, right? It, they may be beautiful because they're created in the image of God in the Imago Dei. But uh, what they've done to their body for the sake of making money um, in a sinful way is not beautiful <laughs> because it's not good. It's not true. It's not, it's not leading to human flourishing. God is beautiful. And listen, what God makes is beautiful. Throughout the Genesis narrative, we see God creating. And after God creates, he says, and it's good, it's good, it's good, over and over. And then at the end of his creation, he says, it's very good, and he rests. One Hebrew theologian says that that word good, even a better, uh, more weightier word there is the word beautiful. God created, and he said, this is beautiful. And part of his creation was human beings, and we see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that it says that they were created in his image, what theologians call the Imago Dei. And he was very pleased and they were beautiful. And part of being created in the image of God is being created as rational, relational beings. We're created in God's image. God made us in his likeness so that when God communicates to us as, as human beings, we can know what God is like. He communicates to us in anthropomorphic terms, in terms that helps us to, to, to understand and be able to know what he's like with eyes so we can know what it means when he says uh, uh, that the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth and so forth, with hands, that the hands of the Lord form, right? He's communicating to us and he's, he created us as relational beings. He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for all eternity, they have been, and in, in, in eternity's future, they will be uh, one, gloriously one, enjoying each other's beauty. So when we talk about beauty, we want to define beauty. God is objectively beautiful. And in order for something to be beautiful, it needs to be good and true. And that when God created his creation, it was seen as beautiful because it was good and it was truth. But we also want to see that the beauty is falsely reinterpreted. What happens here in the fall is that God's beautiful creation, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, is going to be reduced to something that is merely pretty. It's going to be taken out of the context 
of something of truth and goodness and use for one's own glory. And we see this with Adam and Eve in the garden. Chapter 2, verse 15, chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we see that there's a serpent who is described as the most cunning of all wild animals that the Lord God had made. And so this serpent, who's supposed to be uh, subjected to and under the dominion of Adam and Eve, right? God told, gave him dominion over all the wild animals. Is, is not submitting to, to God's reign and God's rule and is not allowing uh, and, and is seeking to be cunning or to deceive uh, Adam and Eve. And so in verse two through five, we see that this serpent, who we know is Satan, he smoothly maneuvers Eve into what she thinks is a, a sincere theological discussion. But he subverts obedience. He distorts perspective by emphasizing God's prohibition, not his provision, by reducing God's command to a question and by doubting his sincerity as well as defaming his motives. And as a result, they, de uh, they deny the truthfulness of, of God. They don't believe the threat that is put forth, that if you eat of this tree, you will die. And so that's what we see happening. And as a result of the fall, listen, here's where I'm going. As a result of the fall, as a result of them not trusting in God's goodness and God's word, as a result of them believing that they're smarter than God, they eat, Eve eats first, she gets to Adam. Adam said, well, ain't no sense of you being over there, me being over here, he eats too. <laughs> um, and as a result of that, their relationship begins to deteriorate. And here's one of the impacts of the fall, okay? One of the impacts of the fall is now, as, because we've eaten of this tree of, of good and evil as, as Christians, we, uh, as, as human beings, we're born into sin, we're shaped by our iniquity, we're born with the proclivity towards self-glory and selfishness, we're born with a desire to be autonomous apart from God, we're born to want what we want on our terms. And as a result of that, our relationships suffer and they are complicated. As a result of that, we see ourselves behaving in ways towards each other that God has not designed, that God has not called us to do. In fact, we see in verses one through seven, a few things. One, we see that their eyes are open. Their eyes are open. Now, Satan told them, part of his promise was, well, if you eat of this tree, um, he says, well, God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Yeah, their eyes were open, verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So their eyes were open and now they saw their differences. Eve saw that he was, it's implied, different than Adam. Adam saw that she was different from Eve. And now what was a source of, of beauty and, and, and part of, of creation and natural is now looked at uh, as differences and those differences divide. Those differences divide. And as a result, we see in Genesis 8 through 13, there are consequences. Adam and Eve who once were in perfect fellowship with God and enjoying their relationship with them, they're no longer in perfect fellowship with them and enjoying their relationship with them. They're hiding from them because they're filled with guilt. They're afraid of his presence. They're filled with shame. That's what sin does. It distorts. 
And this is all because they, they looked at a tree that God has made beautiful and in their minds they just saw it simply as attractive, simply as something that they could use for their own glory. So they hide from God. They blame each other. Adam, early on in Genesis, writes the first poem in the Bible. He says, this is flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, and she shall be called woe man, right? It's not what it says in Hebrew, but it works for English. But then we see in Genesis chapter 3 that he no longer is, is, uh, is praising her in that way, but rather he's blaming her for his fall. He tells God the woman you gave her. And what does she do? She blames the serpent, the serpent you gave. So already in just three chapters of the Bible, we see humanity and we see broken relationships and we see that the way that they're relating to each other is, is sinful, it's blame shifting, it is painful. And what happens eventually, just one chapter over, we see that human beings are now killing each other. Cain kills Abel. Their, their sons, one of their sons, murder another son because of the fall, because of sin, because of jealousy, because Abel is different, because Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. His, Cain's heart now is jealous and he murders his own brother. So James chapter 4, why are there fights? Why are there quarrels among you? Is it not this? Because you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Your selfish desires lead you to murder. But this is what's beautiful. As though creation was frustrated, though childbirth became difficult, though there's uh, enmity between men and, and women as a result of the fall, though there's all these distortions, God was at work even then to restore his creation. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So even right away, God uh, knows Adam and Eve have sinned. He knows what happens, and he pursues them. And I love that, that phrase, in the cool of the day, in the breeze of the day. It's communicating peace. It's communicating that though they sinned against God and though they will face the consequences of that sin, that God is still who he has always been. He is a gracious and merciful God. He's a God that loves his creation. And then it goes on and we read in verse 15 of chapter 3, the proto-evangelium, the first uh, uh, hint at the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, I will put hostility, God is talking to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that God is going to bring restoration to fallen humanity and it's going to come through a human being. And Romans we read these words, the Apostle Paul says these words, it's chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul uses this language pointing us back to the garden, back to Eden, saying, listen, Jesus is the promised one who was promised way back in Genesis 3, he will defeat Satan. He will restore all things. And this is what God is doing. He's restoring all things. And part of what he's restoring is relationships. He is creating a new humanity that will not cover themselves with fig leaves. That will not cover themselves with, with, with the things of this world. 
They will not cover themselves with thin veneers, but they will cover themselves with the righteousness of Christ. They will cover themselves with the, will allow themselves to be covered by God's love. They will cover themselves with a new way of relating and a new way of being. And that new way is the way in which the world, the way in which the world is actually drawn to the church by seeing this new way. And this is all the way back in the Garden of Eden. We see that, that God covered Verse chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. He clothes the man and his wife, makes a sacrifice in the garden, which ultimately is pointing to a, a, a sacrifice that will one day come. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, he makes a sacrifice and he covers Adam and Eve, symbolic of his grace. So where are you going with this, Pastor Jamal? You're talking a lot. What you talking about, bro? Here's where I'm going. John 17. John 17. Verse 20. This is Jesus praying just before he goes to the cross. He's praying for his his church, for all believers that are to, to come after. He says this, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus is bringing restoration. Jesus, God, is is bringing out a new people who will not be a Genesis 3 people, but who will be a completely transformed people. They won't be a people that's hiding themselves in fig leaves. They won't be a people who are uh, okay with being uh, completely dysfunctional and, and worldly in their living. They're a new creation now that knows that God has saved them to be one and that God has saved them to be in a relationship with a triune God and with each other. And notice what Jesus said. He talks about glory, that the world would see the glory that, that we have, Father, and that they may have that glory as well, the beauty that we have and that they have that the world may see that you love them just as you love me and that their love will propel them to love each other in a way that is absolutely beautiful and absolutely amazing. That's the theological basis for our two values that we're talking about today, transformative relationships and diverse fellowship. As Sojourn Midtown, we are not going to settle for Genesis 3 type relationships. We're not going to settle for a relationships as a result of the fall that where we're okay with hiding from each other, where we're okay with blame shifting, where we're okay with covering ourselves with fig leaves and phoniness. No, as a church, we believe that God is glorified and that God is seen as beautiful when we Instead of a Genesis 3 lifestyle, when we leave a Colossians 3 lifestyle, Colossians 3, set your minds on the things that are above where Christ is, right? 
uh, uh, setting our minds on Christ. And as a result, Colossians 3 lays out that we are a, a community that's transformed, a community that does not live and do life together like the world, a community that's quick to admit our faults, a community that's quick to forgive, a community that's intentional about pursuing each other, a community that's saying we're covered in Christ's righteousness, our identity comes from him, therefore, when I enter into relationships with you, I don't have to put up a fake veneer. I don't have to uh, uh, act as if I have it all together. I don't have to live in fear that if you really get to know the real me, you won't like me. No, the gospel says that all of us, apart from God's grace, are pretty jacked up. And that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that all of us, even those who are in Christ and who have given their life to Christ, that that though we are redeemed, that we still have some issues and some proclivities and an old man that hasn't moved out, but that has moved over. And we've got to learn this way of doing. So we've all have learned how to live in a Genesis 3 way, how to live blame shifting, how to live giving into the lust of our flesh, how to live with a relational shallowness. And part of us being a disciple of Jesus and following the way of Jesus is, is learning now to give of ourselves. And some of us, the reason that we behave that way in Genesis 3 is because we've been hurt, all of us. We've experienced relational trauma. We've seen our, our parents live in certain ways when there were cl- conflicts for uh, either through extreme passivity or aggression. And we carry all of that. And then we have our own stuff that we carry. We bring that into our relationships. But the gospel is what we clothe ourselves in. And we believe that the gospel is the power of God to transform. And that it's in Christian community that we can grow. That we can say no to the way in which we most easily identify and relating that doesn't glorify God. And that we can do the hard work of hard work by allowing the Spirit through the Word of God to convict us. The Word of God says we're, we're a transformed com- community that has deep relationships when something isn't right with a person rather than gossiping about them. We pray for them. Because that's what the Word says. That's a tra- transformative relationship. We go to them one-on-one, Matthew 18, 15 through 18. We, we consider the source of gossip. Proverbs 18 and 17, knowing that a a person seems right when they make their case until they're cross-examined. And then we forgive. (laughs) Just as Christ, Colossians 3.23, has forgiven us. So here's what I'm saying. We value transformative relationships. We value intentionality here at Sojourn. That intentionality looks like We value each of our members being a part of a community group where you can do life with other believers in the mundane. And sometimes that isn't exciting. Sometimes it's hard. And sometimes those other believers are going to get on our nerves. And sometimes we're going to have things that seem way more important than gathering together with the people of God, but we do so knowing that change comes as we allow the Holy Spirit in relationships to encourage us and convict us. Adam and Eve, they left that garden clothed by God together. They didn't walk separate ways and say, you go this way and I go this way. 
And God has called us to do life together. That's why we see in the book of Acts, the early church, they are in relationship with each other. On Sunday, they gather together and worship. Why? Because Jesus defeated death on Sunday. But we also see that they're meeting together, the Bible says, and breaking bread. They're having meals together. They're opening up the word together. Often. Often doing life together. And what happens in the book of Acts? Those who are in Jerusalem, they look into this fellowship and they say, man, this isn't the way other people relate. This isn't the way uh, the Jews relate to each other. There's a depth here. There's a, a love here. They are sharing what they have with each other. There's a sacrifice here. There's some, there's, there's some weird things that's happening amongst each other. They, they are humble people, a, a broken people. They are a, a, a contra-worldly people. They're other-worldly. And that's what God has called us to do. And that requires Holy Spirit-driven courage. That requires Bible-believing people. That requires gospel-clinging people. People who don't easily give up on one another because they know that Christ didn't give up on them. People who look to Jesus as their model and their example, who stuck it in when things got hard and tough and rough. Are you a transformative friend? Are you a, a transformative member? A member who is seeking to do relationships based upon what the word of God says? Are you using your gifts to serve others? Are you allowing the gospel to be at the center of your relationships and the word? Are you a person who, who sees maybe a pattern in another person's life that is destructive, that doesn't glorify the Lord regularly, and rather than allowing them to go down that path, you speak the grace, the truth and grace? That's what the Bible is calling us to be, to be a transformative community who is intentionally, who is intentionally going into communion. I know some of you have been hurt and it's hard. And I know it's hard. But the Bible constantly calls us to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Being a Christian isn't easy. But God gives us the power to. Second, we're a diverse fellowship. Um, every person matters to God, so they matter to us. I mean, when Jesus calls the church to be one in John chapter 17, he's, he's calling the church, the church, the global church, not just Jews, he's calling Jews and Gentiles to be one. That's what we see in Ephesians chapter two. It talks about how Jesus has torn down that wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles to live as one body in Christ. And this isn't like just a part of the narrative of, the, of scripture. This is this is like a major theme throughout the Bible. Some will argue is the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is reconciliation, that God is a God who reconciles men to himself and people to each other. We see this back in Genesis chapter 3, but we see this throughout the scriptures in Genesis chapter 12 when God comes to Abram and gives Abram a promise that, that from his seed... The nations will be blessed. His, his seed will be numerous as the stars. We see Paul picking up this language in Galatians chapter, uh, throughout the book of Galatians, that, that the body of Christ, this one new man that has been created, is a diverse body. A body made up of differences. Galatians 3, chapter 28, there's no longer male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, Greek nor uh, barbarian nor Scythian. We're all one in Christ. 
And it is an affront to the beauty of God. It is an affront to the glory of God. It is an affront to the mission of God when churches gather in homogeneous ways. When we gather around not, 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 not in light of our differences together, but we gather around to be comfortable in sameness. When we gather around social economically to say, I'm only going to be around people who are wealthy because they get me. Or I'm only going to be around people who are, are poor because they get me. Or I'm only going to be around people who are, are black or, or white or Asian or a Latino because they get me. And we gather together in our little homogeneous circles and lives. And the biggest thing that Satan has done is in Genesis chapter 3, he has allowed our differences to divide. And we believe the lie that our differences are too different for us to worship together, for us to be in each other's lives and community. God has called us to be a diverse community of people who are able and disabled. People who are rich and poor people who are Republican or, or Democrat, people who are Asian, Latino, black, white, whatever it is, God has called us to be one in Christ. And what keeps us in Christ and what keeps that oneness is Jesus. And through Jesus, we can deal with difficult conversations that the world will give up on. Through Jesus, we can deal with our awkwardness and not being able to understand each other because we weren't raised a certain way or don't have the same philosophical, political views because, because the cross trumps all of that. Through Jesus, we can come and say, hey, we've got more in common than we don't have in common. What we have in common is that we're, we're sinners, that we're headed to hell, <laughs> that we have unhealthy ways of relating to each other, but that Jesus came in and gave a dead heart life. And that Jesus is the reigning king of the world. And he died for all types of people. And to unite them all together in one. Christian, you have more in common with a believer. A person who believes in the atonement of Jesus Christ. Who is not in your social economic sphere, who is not a part of your racial makeup, who, who has no, uh, 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 who's on a different plane than you politically, you have more in common with that person than a person who matches all those other boxes. And we want to be a church that declares to the world that this matters to God. In fact, I argue, based on John 17, that this is one of the key apologetics to the church. How will you know my disciples? You are my disciples, John 13, John 16. How do you know that they're my disciples by the love they have for one another? It's easy to love people who are just like you. It's easy to love people who like the same worship music as you. It's easy to love people who, who like to eat the same food as you. It's easy to love people who like to do the same hobbies as you. It takes the Holy Spirit to love people who are different than you. And listen, as Christians, we are filled with the spirit who is called our paraclete, who is called our comforter, who is called our helper, because we are supposed to constantly be putting ourselves in situations where we're uncomfortable and need help. We are a people who are being transformed by God as we Go before the presence of God 
as we cultivate lives of prayer, as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, as we take time to think about our life and to deal with our trauma and issues in light of the cross, it builds us up as a people and it enables us to do life together with other broken people knowing that God is in the process of making us whole. But if we're not pursuing the presence of God, if we're hiding from God more often than we're seeking his face, if prayer isn't a value, if his word isn't a value, we will end up looking just like the world and handling and handling our differences like the world. Y'all, I'm excited. I'm excited about what the Lord is doing here because together we are saying with these values, forget shallowness. Enough of shallow, enough of trying to impress people with man-made fig leaves. We need God ordained and applied grace. We need his righteousness, his identity, his clothing. And we're going to go deep and we're going to hurt each other, but we're going to go deep and forgive and get right back in the ring knowing that God is transforming us through iron sharpens iron. He didn't say pillows sharpen pillows. He ain't called us to be soft. Iron sharpens iron. There's some fire. There's some sparks that can happen, but we do it with grace, with truth, and with the end not being us being right, but with the end being us being a redeemed people. That's how we do it. And God is inviting us to that fellowship so that the world can look in and say, man, that's beautiful. That, that requires something otherworldly. That requires the spirit of, that requires something supernatural. And every week we come together to celebrate the supernatural work of God by taking a meal together called communion. The early church gathered often and they ate together, they broke bread together. They did life together, and it was messy. Read the New Testament letters. It was messy. It wasn't purdy. It wasn't purdy at all. Mm-mm. It was messy. But they stuck it through because God gave them a vision of what the beloved community is. And they came together regularly and broke bread to remind themselves of what mattered most, and that's the crucified, bloody Savior who defeated death. And every week we gather together to take this meal to remind us of what matters most. The Savior that was crucified, that is alive and doing well, and that's coming back for his diverse bride. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, took bread, gave thanks and broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. The same way he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. It is in this meal that we are reminded of Jesus' beauty. Isaiah 53, 2-3 says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Speaking of Jesus, the coming Messiah, 700 years before he came, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering 
and familiar with pain. You say, well, relationships are really hard for me. I like to stay shallow. I don't like for people to know me. Once people know me, I get a little, little edgy. I find another group of friends. I don't like pain. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be in pain. And yet for a greater purpose, he constantly pursued us and pursued relationships, pursued the cross. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. So on a cross that Jesus became ugly so that we could become beautiful. He who knew no sin became sin. He who knew no ugliness became ugly so that we might be the righteous, so that we might be the beauty of God. When we take communion, that's what we celebrate. If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to run to Jesus, to learn about Jesus, to see him as, as Lord and Savior of the universe, to see him as the one who is truly beautiful and as the standard of beauty. Don't be like Adam and Eve trying to live apart from God. It doesn't do well. God created you with a hole in your heart that only he can fill. And specifically, only Jesus Christ can feel. Run to him. Find forgiveness. Find reconciliation. Come to know this God who loves you. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it. This is my body broken for you. Here at Sojourner, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. Um, if you're not a Christian, please don't partake in this part of the meal. Those of you in the front half of the room, come to the front. Back half of the room, go to the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. Let's pray.